Sup, you beautiful bastards. Welcome back to the Philip DeFranco Show. It is Wednesday, May 17th. You're watching for some news, so let's just jump into it. Starting with... I'm so excited because the new culture war dropped. He said sarcastically, I'm going to slam my head against a f***ing wall. Everything's so stupid, though. I, su- I suppose I should be more specific. I'm talking about the war against woke advertising. That is raging again, this time uh, taking aim at Miller Lite. Because they're facing backlash right now for an ad that actually ran back in March for Women's History Month. Apparently, people want to be so pissed off, there's not enough stuff now. We got we to gotta look back. But there, the ad featured Alana Glazer, who you might know from Broad City, talking about the history of women and brew beering. Brew beering, I'm a genius. Beer brewing. Women were among the very first to brew beer ever. From Mesopotamia to the Middle Ages to colonial America, women were the ones doing the brewing. Centuries later, how did the industry pay homage to the founding mothers of beer? They put us in bikinis. Wow. But they're then going on to show other beer ads featuring women in bikinis, of which there are many, and saying that it's time that the beer industry make it up to women, and then explaining Miller's bad shit to good shit campaign, where you have the company collecting their old sexist ads and turning them into compost or fertilizer for female hops farmers to use, with then those hops being donated to female brewers all in honor of Women's History Month. And all that making waves in conservative circles this week. I'm guessing because the, the whole Bud Light, Dylan Mulvaney situation maybe is cooling off. Because again, th- this whole bad shit to good shit campaign actually came out several weeks before Dylan posted her video drinking Bud Light. Right? It's like people are actually actively looking to be angry, which, to be fair, is a bipartisan venture. You know, those angered were saying things like, this is what happens when you give liberal women positions of power in business. Go woke, go broke, just like Bud Light. Tommy Laren putting out an op-ed in Newsweek today, calling the ad another cheap shot at straight men. Even had the likes of Joe Rogan chiming in, defending those old Miller Lite ads. Those women wear bikinis because they look great. They like to look great. It's not bad to look great. It's just yeah. like it's not bad for a guy to have a shirt off. It's so oh, stupid. It's that human beings made beer, okay? And some human beings look good in bikinis. It's like, what are we doing? It's crazy. Women do it. Women do it. Women it's, do it. Like, what, I'd like to see a pie chart of how many women are actually involved <laughs> in making beer or drinking beer. And as far as what Miller Lite has had to say about this, they gave a statement to Vox saying, the video was about two things, worm poop and saying women shouldn't be forced to mud wrestle in order to sell beer. Neither of these things should be remotely controversial and we hope beer drinkers can appreciate the humor and ridiculousness of this video from back in March. And so right now it remains to be seen if this is going to continue to grow, if it's going to be anything like what we saw happen with Bud Light, where you had reporting from earlier this month that in the third week of April, U.S. retail store sales for Bud Light actually fell 21% compared to the same period a year ago. And personally, I find myself, uh, I don't know if it's if it's correct to say I don't care, but I don't know. All of it just feels stupid. Like, what we're talking about is advertising for legalized poison. I'll have a beer now and then. Granted, I don't ever drink light beer because what I want is like the nastiest tasting bullshit so that it forces me to sip it. Like there's just no part of me that's wondering, you know, I wonder where Miller Lite stands on the issues. Because that's the thing. They don't actually stand anywhere on the issue. They're just trying to get you to buy shit. Though I also know I may be alone in this, right? There are going to be some people going, you know, they're raising a really important issue. They're talking about the past and how to like resolve that. And then on the other side, you have the self-proclaimed anti-cancel culture people once again, like calling for a boycott and trying to destroy a company because they see something and they feel personally attacked. But hey, like with all things Philip DeFranco show, whether you agree with me, you disagree with me, whatever, I'd love to hear from you in those comments down below on this. And then, let's talk about the inevitable case that Jenna Barbie has found herself in, where she's a teacher at the Winding Waters K-8 public school in Brooksville, Florida. During standardized testing earlier this month, she says that she wanted to give her fifth grade students a brain break. So she's like, let's watch a movie, a Disney movie, it's called Strange World. It's a PG animated film about a journey to a mysterious underground land, which she said would relate to the science lessons about the environment that they were learning. But, 
key thing. This is Florida, and the filmmakers committed the egregious crime of including an openly gay character. And so with that, school board member Shannon Rodriguez, whose kid was in Barbie's class, reported her to both the principal and state officials. And so as a result, the Florida Department of Education announced that it's investigating whether she broke the so-called Don't Say Gay law, which when it was first passed in March of 2022, banned teachers from discussing gender or sexual orientation from kindergarten through third grade. But then last month, the State Board of Education expanded that to all grades in K-12 public schools. So Barbie there saying, among other things, she wasn't aware of that change, also defending her actions in a recent viral TikTok. I was told by every teacher and mentor at our school that our method for approval by administration of showing movies was to have a signed parent permission slip for PG movies. I had that from the beginning of the year. The whole fifth grade team had signed permission slips for PG movies with no objections to specific content. Is a character in the movie LGBTQ? Absolutely. Is that why I showed it? No. I have a lot of fifth grade students who have come to me this year, long before showing this movie, talking about how they're part of that community as well. And it's not a big deal to me. So I just said, okay, that's awesome. Do you? Um, not pushing anything, just being accepting. That's what I do. Yeah, now you have state officials reportedly planning to interview her students as part of the probe, but also regardless of the investigation, her students aren't going to see her anymore anyway, because she's already submitted her letter of resignation and citing the reason being politics and the fear of not being able to be who you are in Florida public schools, which echoes statements that we've seen from other Florida teachers recently. And then, as Caesar said, in the rise of the planet of the apes, strippers alone weak, strippers together strong. And apparently these dancers at the Star Garden topless dive bar in North Hollywood took that lesson to heart, because they're now poised to become the only group of organized strippers in the United States now that their employer agreed to recognize their union. And that following a 15-month-long effort to join the Actors' Equity Association, whose 51,000 members include workers on Broadway and at Disney World. Though notably, they're not technically over the finish line yet, as the NLRB still needs to tally the votes from last year's union election, the counting of which was delayed by legal challenges. But they are expected to certify the union, and this is a huge breakthrough for the labor movement, right? Because the stigma that's existed around adult entertainment has long stifled organizing efforts, with the dancers really not being taken seriously as real performers. But for now, at least the ones at this bar are going to have leverage to bargain for better protections against sexual assault by customers and wage theft by the employer. And we'll have to wait to see if this is a random outlier story or if it starts some sort of domino effect. And then Prince Harry and Meghan Markle reportedly almost got Princess Diana to New York last night. Because apparently nobody learns from horrible things when money's involved. With the two reportedly involved in a dangerous car chase by paparazzi last night, a spokesperson for the couple saying the chase was near catastrophic and describing the paparazzi as highly aggressive. And adding, while being a public figure comes with a level of interest from the public, it should never come at the cost of anyone's safety. And saying the relentless pursuit lasting over two hours resulted in multiple near collisions involving other drivers on the road, pedestrians, and two NYPD officers. And a BBC News report saying that there are claims that the chase involved roughly six cars driving recklessly by running red lights, driving on the sidewalk, carrying out blocking moves, going backwards on a one-way road, and taking pictures while driving. Though very big thing here, this is still a developing story, so much more details about the chase are likely to come out. But as far as some of the reported details, we've seen numerous reports saying that Harry and Meghan didn't want photographers to know where they were staying, so they reportedly tried to evade them during a 75-minute chase up and down a main road before ducking into an NYPD precinct where they could hide out before getting into a new car without being followed. The NYPD also confirming that they assisted in protecting the couple as numerous photographers made their transport challenging, but also they're noting that the two did make it to their destination and there were no collisions, injuries, or arrests. The couple's spokesperson also asking the public not to share images of the incident, saying dissemination of these images, given the ways in which they were obtained, encourages a highly intrusive practice that is dangerous to all involved. And of course, adding an extra layer to this story, right, it's impossible to hear this and not think of Harry's mother, Princess Diana, because she died in a car crash in Paris after being chased by paparazzi, which is also something Harry's made very clear 
multiple times that he's afraid could happen to Megan. Because even as far back as when they just started dating, there's been an insane tabloid frenzy around her. You know, with all this, with the chase, you had people saying things like, happy now? Is this what you want for history to repeat itself? Just leave them the fuck alone. You say you want Harry and Megan to disappear, so why are the paps chasing them down for the money show? Because y'all keep buying the rags and lapping it up. You also had New York City Mayor Eric Adams invoking Diana while speaking about the incident, saying, I don't think there's many of us who don't recall how his mom died. And it would be horrific to lose an innocent bystander during a chase like this and something to have happened to them as well. I think this was a bit reckless and irresponsible. With this bouncing between things, adding that he finds it hard to believe that a chase would have lasted in the city as congested as New York for two hours. So they're saying even a chase as short as 10 minutes could be incredibly dangerous. But there's also been a debate around the characterization of like what happened during the, the supposed two hours. Or does that amount of time include the down periods between the most dangerous things that happened? And obviously with this, like I said, it's a developing situation. More details will come out. But as we wait for that, I'd love to know your thoughts in those comments down below on where you're landing here. And then, have you ever given a Father's Day gift that, that didn't get you excited to give to your dad or your father figure? And you constantly hear it, gifting dad can be hard. But thanks to the fantastic sponsor and longtime partner of today's show, Ridge, it's got a whole lot easier. Y'all, Ridge has redesigned the wallet. It expands to hold up to 12 cards and have room for cash while remaining as slim as possible with RFID blocking and a lifetime guarantee. And for those that tend to lose their wallets, Ridge has the option of air tags so it doesn't get lost for long. And, you know, their sleek design is what I love the most. There's over 30 colors and styles to choose from. And I can't forget to remind you of their durable key case that holds up to six keys. That sucker takes a whole jingle out of the key ring experience and it's just cool. You know, with over 3 million customers, 50,000 plus five-star reviews, the Ridge team is so confident that you're gonna like it, they'll let you test drive it for 99 days. You don't love it? Send it back for a full refund. So find the best Father's Day gift right now using my link, ridge.com slash DeFranco. And you can save up to 40% through June 15th. That's ridge.com slash DeFranco. And then gamers are pissed right now. And not in the rage because you gave up a goal in the 93rd minute while you're playing a bullshit scripted FIFA game, Philip DeFranco way. Rather, because of one of the most common things we see in the gaming industry, broken promises. And specifically right now, there are a lot of gaming fans that feel completely wronged by Blizzard Entertainment, with them casually dropping that they were scrapping a massive feature that they promised in 2019 for the game Overwatch 2. And even if you're not into gaming, it's a very interesting business story. Right? Because the company promised that eventually it would have a deep narrative-driven story mode that people could play with their friends and progress through, with that being in addition to the player versus player experience that it currently has. And fans were hyped as hell for that because Overwatch's characters hint at a deep and interesting story that's never really explored outside of the random cinematics they release. You know, the company wasn't ignorant to the fact that they were going to get backlash for this new plan, with us seeing the executive producer trying to defend the decision to drop the story content. With everything we've learned about what it takes to operate this game at the level that you deserve, it's clear that we, we can't deliver on that original vision for PvE that was shown in 2019. What that means is that we won't be delivering that dedicated hero mode with talent trees, um, that long-term power progression. Uh, those things just aren't in our plans anymore. We know that this is going to be disappointing to many of you, which is why we wanted to bring it up before we talked about the roadmap. And to be perfectly honest, it's been really difficult for, for many of us and, and a lot of folks on the team who've poured their heart and soul into that. With the team also going on to explain that this doesn't mean that there wouldn't be any story-driven content, just more one-off seasonal things similar to what they've done in the past for Overwatch 1. And while yes, those were popular and fun for many, they're a far cry from what was promised. So in no way was it surprising that fans were pissed off. Or sometimes you can be critical of gamers because you're like, okay, you have absolutely wild expectations, they're unrealistic, you just want to complain, but this feels very different. With many pointing out that the whole story mode was essentially the whole reason Overwatch 2 was made. And popular creators and gamers like Moist Critical blasting the decision in a 13 minute video. The whole point of it having a tool in its name and being marketed as a sequel is that there was this promise, this little pinky promise that the PvE and story mode, the hero mode, all that, it was coming. It was, you know, trademarked right around the corner. It's on its way. Which begs the philosophical question that would have Socrates scratching at his noggin. What the f*** is Overwatch 2 then? Why is Overwatch 2? If the whole thing that was supposed to be the identity of this 
title, the PvE story mode, is no longer in it, then what makes Overwatch 2? And with this, I'm also wondering, did they know they were lying from the get-go? With other massive creators like Ludwig pointing out that when Overwatch 2 was announced, Activision Blizzard wasn't really doing hot financially. But I think this was a lot of internal pressure from higher-ups to deliver on a product, an over-hyper product, to get them out of a tumultuous time, which led to disaster for the game itself. And all of this leading to some awkward questions, such as what have the developers actually been doing for the past three and a half years? Especially as many have seen that PvP experience essentially being Overwatch 1 just with tweaks. And so with this, many saying this is a prime example of what Blizzard is now, that generating profit is the only priority. That in the past, you had a Blizzard that had a reputation of killing off nearly finished products that didn't meet its then high standards, rather than what we're seeing in this moment of releasing something and then killing off a promised part of it, leaving fans disappointed. But at the same time, of course, gamers are not a monolith. You have some saying, while you can be disappointed, a lot of what we're seeing is an overreaction, right? Noting that Overwatch 2 is free to play. But there, you also have people pushing back saying, yes, it's free to play, but people get invested in the game. They buy skins. They spend money on it anyway, possibly for some with the expectation that this PVE mode comes out. But that's also why I want to pass the question off to you. What are your thoughts here? And I'd love to hear from you whether you're a gamer or you're not a gamer, though uh, most non-gamers uh, use those time codes to skip these kinds of stories. But for the seven of you non-gamers that didn't, would love to hear from you as well. And then Jimmy Fallon is facing so much backlash right now because he just gave Tears of the Kingdom a two out of 10 rating. Not really, rather that was, uh, that was a simple post that Jimmy Fallon had put out, you know, seemingly going like, hey, I'm trying this new game. With him then just getting absolutely bullied and dogpiled on for what's happening with the writer's strike. Because while Fallon's getting some switch time in with the whole WGA strike happening, there are reports coming out that he's putting his staff on unpaid leave. With one of his staffers tweeting yesterday, this Friday is our last day of pay. We, non-union staff who aren't writers, will be put on an unpaid leave of absence during the strike. Meanwhile, I hear folks at Late Night with Seth Meyers and The Late Show with Stephen Colbert will continue to be paid. Solidarity with WGA. And HuffPost speaking to an unnamed source close to NBC who confirmed that after this week, non-writing staff members will not be paid. And other sources confirming that other late night shows will actually continue to pay their staff. And to make sure you get some extra context here, when the strike started, NBC agreed to pay staff for two weeks and Fallon saying he would cover a third. So now you have tons of people slamming Fallon and saying that he could afford to continue paying his workers writing. Fallon's cheapness is a choice and allowed one at that. Now on one hand, you have people saying Fallon deserves every bit of this criticism, especially because it's his choice to have such a punchable face. But on the other hand, you have people saying it's not fair to solely target Jimmy Fallon here because right now he's recovering from just years and years of forcibly laughing at unfunny jokes. Right? His brain is actively healing right now, something that's probably evident if you went into his Tears of the Kingdom save file and saw some of his subpar builds. But for now, we're gonna have to wait to see how all this is gonna play out. And I mean that both for Jimmy Fallon and his staff, as well as the writer's strike in general, which the WGA is saying is costing the California economy $30 million per day. And then, you know, there's an understandable concern and the students are just using ChatGPT to finish their assignments? Well, on the flip side of that concern, ChatGPT just prevented these college seniors from getting their diplomas. And that's because a professor from Texas A&M decided to give his students zeros on their assignments because ChatGPT falsely took credit for their essays. With a Reddit user, reportedly the partner of one of the affected students, interviewed by Rolling Stone and sharing the email, which said the professor copied the last three essay assignments into ChatGPT twice, and if it took credit for the essay both times, the students received a zero. The university then holding the diplomas for many seniors in the class. But the problem with that is that's not how ChatGPT works. The AI is reportedly very quick to just take credit for anything you ask. Rolling Stone even saying that it took credit for writing Crime and Punishment. And when you had students responding with time codes on Google Docs showing their work, proving they didn't use AI, their professor responded with, I don't grade AI bullshit. And so now while the diplomas are on hold, you've got the university investigating the incident. I mean, this is absolutely insane. And then the North Carolina legislature just voted to ban so-called elective abortions after 12 weeks. So you can get an exception up to 20 weeks, but it has to involve incest or you have to have been raped to qualify, as well as there being an exception for lethal fetal anomalies through 24 weeks and a general exception for cases when the mother's life is in danger. And all of this is massive news in general for a number of reasons, including a law like this would have been unthinkable in North Carolina as little as a month ago. Because with Democrat Roy Cooper as governor there, any proposed ban would simply get shot down by his veto. But then in April, 
that change because Democrat Trisha Cotham defected from her own party and joined the Republicans, which dun -da -da -da, gave them a veto-proof supermajority, a move that shocked her colleagues for a number of reasons, including just earlier that year, she backed a bill that would have legalized abortion until 22 or 23 weeks. But with this, you had Governor Cooper not just giving up, instead aggressively targeting moderate Republicans who pledged to oppose further abortion restrictions during their campaigns, right? Because if he could win back just one single vote, either from the Senate or the House there, then abortion rights in North Carolina would remain intact, which a very key thing is something a majority of the state actually supports, according to a recent poll, with over half of voters wanting to keep or extend the 20-week limit that was in place there. But ultimately, what we saw when the bill went up for a vote in the Senate and then the House yesterday is that it cleared the bar. And this is a crowd in the gallery erupted in a chorus of shame. Also notably, because the vote was so tight there, hardline Republicans had to compromise with their more moderate colleagues on the bill, which is why it's not as extreme as some of the other laws we've seen. Because some state Republicans wanted the ban to be six weeks. But due to the compromise that they had to make here, this is one of the first laws since Roe v. Wade got overturned that doesn't outlaw all or most abortions. Right? Because reportedly over 90% of abortions happened before or during the 13th week. There are also things in this bill seemingly meant to deflect accusations that Republicans are pro-birth, not pro-life. Things like it allocates tens of millions of dollars to child care, foster care, and paid family leave. With all this, you had Democrats arguing that it's much more more complicated than that, with them pointing to examples like a requirement that patients have an in-person consultation with a doctor at least 72 hours before the abortion, in addition to the visit required for the abortion itself, something that will make it much harder for out-of-state patients to travel to North Carolina for, by the day becomes a bigger and bigger issue since that state has become a refuge for women from red states. So they're saying that even though this ban is technically 12 weeks, it actually helps other states with much harsher laws enforce their bans, such as with their neighbor South Carolina, where GOP lawmakers are pushing through their so-called heartbeat bill that would ban most abortions after about six weeks, and there, even six weeks was a compromise, with them actually trying to pass a near total ban three times since Roe v. Wade fell, but female GOP lawmakers blocked those efforts. And so of course, with this, I gotta ask you, what are your thoughts on the continued fallout we're seeing post-Roe v. Wade? And for now, that's where the news ends. But of course, remember, my name's Philip DeFranco. You've just been filled in. I love yo faces, and I'll see you tomorrow.